Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it back. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Smith here, primarily to talk about Burnley. I write the Known and Ever um, newsletter, which goes out every week via Substack, and it's free, so you've got absolutely no reason not to subscribe. Hello, I'm John McKenzie. I spend far too much time thinking about Leeds United to no great advantage to anyone. And I put up a load of content over at All Stats, aren't we? So do check that out if Leeds United are interesting to you and maybe their demise is more interesting. So you should still check us out. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me, guys. For those that don't recall, this is the uh, original group of the Bundesliga for Beginners podcast that lasted, what, a healthy two months? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone did things in lockdown that they didn't carry on doing. <laughs> that was one of mine. Yep, yep. Sounds like it. But an absolute pleasure to, to have both of you back on and chat about football again. Uh, I figure we should start off by talking about Everton because much was made this week about their demise, about how they're genuine, you know, relegation fodder after being defeated by Newcastle last week. And unfortunately for John, uh, Things changed a bit this weekend with a big 3-0 win. Uh, so I was just curious from you guys, did you ever really buy that they were in genuine trouble? And where do you think they'll wind up come the end of the season? Yeah, I mean, John might have a different perspective on this, but obviously my view is kind of clouded by the fact Burnley needed Everton to still be in it. So I was certainly hoping that they were going to continue to be struggling. Um I'd also be wary not to read too much into one result. Like, I don't think it was fair to read too much into them losing to Newcastle. I don't think we should get carried away with them beating Leeds. Um, I think it's fair to say most people do expect them to climb out of it. The Everton squad is very imbalanced, but there's enough good players there to, to be solidly mid-table. They probably shouldn't be as low in the league as they are. Um, but I do think it's... a Quite a risky appointment. Frank Lampard has got a relative success on his CV at Derby and I would say a relative failure at Chelsea on his CV. So a real mixed bag. Um, obviously, both clubs are in challenging situations for various reasons, but I don't think he's a slam dunk appointment by any means. Um, and one of the big problems Everton have had this season is defensively. And Lampard isn't someone who's regarded as being particularly strong as a as a defensive manager. So I do think it's quite risky. Um, looking at the games that they've got coming up, Southampton away, Man City at home, Spurs away, Wolves at home. That's a tough run of games. We're going to learn a lot about Lampard as a manager um, over the course of the next few weeks. And they've obviously got the cup game as well against Boreham Wood, which they should win. But a lot of teams should have beaten Boreham Wood already in the cup and haven't. So you never know. I think it's going to be a really interesting period to see 
what Lampard can squeeze out of that Everton squad, which has plenty of talent. They've got England's goalkeeper. They've got an England international in defence. They've got international throughout the squad. They've got a very good striker when he's fitting Calvert-Lewin. Um, and Everton perennially see themselves as European contenders. So there's no doubt there's potential for more there. But I do think Lampard is a, a bit of a risk. And from a Burnley perspective, still have to hope that they find it difficult to put results together because they need to be one of the teams that we try and catch. I think that there's, it's quite interesting that people talk about whether or not clubs are good enough or bad enough to go down. Uh, I think at this point in the season, it, it makes very little difference how good or bad you think teams are. It's very much dependent on where they are at in the table. And on that basis, Everton very much are in danger of going down. Um, because yeah, all it takes is a, a few a few results one way or the other, and you could you could get dragged right back into that um, into that um, relegation battle. And as a Leeds fan, obviously, I've been keeping a keen eye on the bottom of the table this season. Um, the way that I've sort of conceived of it, I mean, Everton and Leeds are a point a point apart, I think, uh, with Everton having a game in hand, so we're very much in the same sort of boat. Uh, but for me, it's very much a rate of change issue. It's the the, the issue isn't so much who's better or who's worse. It's who's got the more points and then what rate of change of performance would you expect to have to happen for that um, points difference to be overtaken? So um, taking someone like, I won't do Burnley just to to, 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 to save Jamie, but um, <laughs> if you take a, a, a club like uh, Watford, um, it, Leeds have been going at one point per game this season, which projects them at like 38 points at the end of the season. For a team, a team like Watford to actually catch Leeds up, they would have to put up about 1.5 points per game this season. Uh, sorry, for the rest of the season, for them to catch up with Leeds. At the, and at the moment, they're doing, I think, 0.65 points per game. So the, the, the issue isn't necessarily who's good or bad. The issue is, can those teams at the bottom of the table perform at the requisite level of points per game to be able to get above the teams who are above them in the in the table immediately above them and it's a really a really tall order i think for anyone to catch up with everton who is below them um i think newcastle obviously have, have had a bit of a turnaround and nine points in out of nine recently has, has done them a huge favor but the bottom three have got a real uh task ahead of them if they're to get out of that bottom three so yeah i think that everton definitely in a relegation battle but i think they they will look at the odds and they'll think we're, we're more likely than not to avoid it. Yeah, I think you guys make some great points. Also, both of you mentioned your clubs being in and around that relegation fight. Neither in particularly great runs of form, neither is Tottenham, so I can't really uh, make too much fun in that regard. But uh, if you guys were in charge of your clubs, what changes would you currently make to try to turn things around in terms of player selection or formation or tactics? Yeah, I mean, this is a tricky one. John might have a similar answer in that Bielsa's someone who doesn't tend to, he's not seen as someone who likes to change. It's Bielsa's way. And I think it's the same at Burnley. It's Dyche's way. Um, and historically, it's worked. So it's been difficult to complain too much. Um, that said, we are bottom of the league. Um, I think performances have improved of late, but our primary issue is still we're not scoring enough goals. We didn't score against Liverpool on Sunday. We scored one against Manchester United midweek. We couldn't score against Watford, couldn't score against Arsenal. So it's quite obvious what our problem is. So is there something that we can do to have more creative threat, to create more chances? Um, So tactical thinker that I am, it's put more defenders into the team, right? That'll work. So (laughs) um, 
I think the issue with Dyche's 4-4-2 is that the wide players are asked to do so much defensive work, backing up the the full backs, making sure that they're narrow, preventing other teams from being able to have width. It just means that it's almost impossible for them to then be a threat going the other way. Um, so my idea is to play a back three with wing backs to offer that width. So Charlie Taylor, when he's fit, he's not available at the moment, but hopefully he's not going to be out too much longer. Um, and Connor Roberts on the other side. That would allow you to play Dwight McNeil, Bing, first mention for Dwight McNeil, as a number 10 behind the front two, which I think offers more threat than we have at the minute with the sort of rigid 4-4-2. Um, but it, it's it's tricky because performances have picked up. We had three, three draws in a row before the Liverpool game, which I think most people who've seen it would agree that we've probably deserved a little bit more than a one or defeat. Um, so performances have picked up, but the real threat of relegation should be focusing minds. And if we're going to do something radical, it's better late than never for me. I, I can't see us staying up playing four four two with defensive wingers. So I would try something completely new. And for me, I think the, the three at the back is well worth having a look at. I think in our case, it's it's kind of complexified by the fact that what we've essentially done is just run our squad into the ground over three seasons <laughs> and haven't really done a huge uh, job of, of being able to churn any players through. Uh, I, whether or not that's because the club felt as though they got into the Premier League, had a decent season last season and sort of felt that they'd completed the Premier League, I don't know. But we are definitely seeing the, the fruits of that now. A lot of Leeds fans do use our injury record to excuse us from that but I, I i i think again that is all part and parcel of the same problem which is if you don't treat your squad uh with with respect then it will stop treating you with respect pretty quickly too um so in terms of like tactical flexibility again as jamie says like we, what do you do with marcelo bielsa you just you play the bielsa way and that's that and i think previously it's it's worked out okay for us because yes you get turned over by big clubs uh, every once in a while, but you also turn over clubs below you. And this season has very much not been the case. I, I actually saw uh, a stat the other day, maybe after the game yesterday, which suggested that, well, it didn't suggest it. It, it simply said that Leeds have uh, lost fewer games this season than they did last season. The issue is, is they've drawn a lot more, um, which I think, again, is a, perhaps a way of, uh, of of facing the the actual problems that are, are going on. Uh, but it's very much been this season about uh, losing control a lot. I think um, I, I don't think that we'll really be in any danger of going down, but because we, I think we have some really good players in our squad, uh, but we don't have the depth of, of squad and we don't have the quality of player across the board to be able to uh, control games. And so what we've ended up doing is just making games more and more chaotic, even so than last season. Um, so it's very much about um, direct attacking, counter-pressing, trying to get the ball back and, and then trying to exploit the space that's left in opposition structures when they are trying to build up. So um, in, in many respects, it's, it's been very frantic and frenetic for Leeds fans this season and I don't know whether or not it's just because I, I have a preference against that but I would would like us to retain uh, maybe a level more control um, and I, I suppose again it's, it's all well and good for me to say that let's try and hold the ball a little bit more let's try and possess the ball a little bit more intelligently uh, but maybe it's simply the case that we don't have the the, the squad and, and the 
talent of players to be able to do that. So, yeah, there's things that I would change, but whether or not I could change them with the the squad on, on hand is a different issue entirely, I think. So I'm sort of in between those those two camps. I don't particularly mind Bielsa in terms of the on-field stuff. It's just the off-field stuff is pretty terrible. And eventually the off-field stuff starts to impact on the on-field stuff. And that's precisely the issue that we have right now. Yeah, so to clarify, both of your clubs have ownership structures that aren't really supporting the playing squad and the managers that are, you know, tactically somewhat rigid uh, <laughs> and players that are underperforming at the moment. Yeah, I, I really don't, uh, I really can't relate with uh, what you guys are going through uh, right now. But uh, we'll go from there and talk about something that actually happened a little bit ago. It was during uh, the international break and then has obviously just finished with Chelsea winning the Club World Cup. But they in- instituted a new version of VAR that's Hawkeye-based, which I think a lot of people were hoping for a long time would eventually come. Made the first ever fully automated offside call, so that's exciting. Uh, but I was curious, what, what advantages or disadvantages do you see coming down the road if and when a, a semi or fully automated offside system is implemented? Yeah, I, mean, I think what's interesting is that this doesn't seem to have been promoted particularly well here. If it is, then, excuse me, I think maybe I just completely missed it, but I was fully unaware that this was even happening, despite the fact that VAR seems to dominate the um, the football agenda every week, no matter how clear-cut def- um, decisions are. Um, I think I'm all for it. I think one of the issues with VAR is that it seems to be applied inconsistently. Um not just in, say, the Premier League, but from league to league, they seem to have their own way of doing it. Um, I've always been pro-VAR broadly, I would say, um, because I think it's the worst thing, not the worst thing, it's bad when your team is on the end of a decision that's clearly wrong, everyone can see at the time it's wrong, but for some reason it has to stand because a man has seen it the other way. so I think something like offside, which is clear-cut, I know we still argue about thickness of lines, which is how the debate goes in this country around football. Um, but at least with offside and VAR, if it's offside, it's offside. There's no subjectivity, or there shouldn't be. Although we saw Manchester United this weekend or during the week with Harry Maguire, who was offside and fouling someone. Like, Does that count? Like, No one seems to know. Um so for me, one of the main issues with VAR is that it's still humans making the decisions and humans are still going to be subjective. We can't make it so that it's always objective and get a 100% correct opinion because that's not going to be, that's just not how the world works, let alone football. So anything that makes decisions more automatic so that it's not just a man watching a screen is all for me, but I think ultimately we do need robot referees. Yeah, I've never really been hugely supportive of VAR. I've not been against it either, but the my my sort of feeling about VAR is precisely as, as Jamie suggested that when you referee a game using uh, human referees, you kind of bake into the system this idea that occasionally there will be mistakes and, and you kind of you kind of work with that. The referee is there to keep the games ticking along to allow a sort of frame of reference within which two teams can agree that they will play um, with, with that arbiter um, officiating over the top. I think what no one really realised was how implementing uh, technology in the way that it has been implemented would actually impact the way that, that, that games take place. And um, I think we see 
we see it a lot now. I think people are probably a lot more negative about the idea of using technology to referee um, than than they were. Um, and I suppose the, there's been two directions that have been taken with this. One of them is people have gone anti-VAR um, to a to a huge extent. Or on the other hand, I think there's a lot of people who say, well, you know, the technology works, but uh, what we need to do is we need to get a system which which allows it to function. Uh, again, I'm I'm still fairly sort of ambivalent about this. Uh, I didn't particularly think there was a huge issues that needed sorting out before, and I don't particularly think that um, trying to sort those issues out now would would necessarily benefit either. So I'm I'm sort of happy to keep things as they are. But um, I, I do feel as though there has to be some sort of conversation about what it is that we're trying to do on a meta level. Like, what is it that we are anticipating ref, video refereeing to achieve? Uh, and are there ways that we can maybe mitigate that a little bit? And there's obviously been lots of conversations about whether or not we overcome the issues of, of the fact that games get slowed down or the, the the problem becomes that there is an exactitude that is wanted and, and people want to uh, dot I's and cross T's on every decision, whether or not you can bring in coaches' decisions and, and have maybe uh, every coach gets one call a game and, and you could if you get it right, then you keep the call, et cetera, un, amenable to that sort of idea. Um, but with the automation thing, yeah, I think it just kind of pushes us further down that road where the idea is that, there has to be a correct decision. And unless you get to a situation or a reality when every decision is being made correctly, which I don't think is possible even with technology, I think there will always be that that pushback against VAR by by fans because it does seem to take something away from from the game. Um, so, yeah, I think that's my, my general take on it. I don't necessarily have a problem with, with VAR. I can understand the point that Jamie makes about how it can be unfair for for clubs to be um, done over by a refereeing decision made by a human. But uh, at the same time, I sort of I'm happy to grin and bear it um, when when these things happen. And um, I, I think that that sort of lets us get on with the game in a way that VAR isn't allowing us at the moment. So, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered the question there, but that's just my general take <laughs> on VAR. <laughs> but it, it is just football, though, isn't it? Like a lucky bounce can go the wrong way. Like things can go wrong. There is that element of randomness, mm. which a lot of managers like to try and control or eliminate Pep Guardiola mm. hates randomness. He wants no randomness in football whatsoever. So he's presumably a massive fan of VAR. I think if they can automate it and it's fast and accurate mm-hmm. and sell it to the fans so that they can see what's happening, I think there's still a problem with VAR that you're not seeing the process in the stadium. You just see that a review is happening and because they don't want to show um, replays of controversial events, they don't tend to show a replay of a challenge that might be a red card or anything. So everyone in the stadium is just in the dark. Uh, one of the interesting things I saw recently, actually, is in tennis, they've automated Hawkeye now. So if balls are in or out, that's all straight away. There's no need for... They still have the line judges, I think, but I don't know what they're there for because the computer just says if it's in or out now. But weirdly, the players can still ask to see the replay to check that the computer was accurate. Um, so I think tennis and cricket as well. So an example is an example of um, a sport where the technology is continually being refined and therefore the use of it is also changing. So in cricket, you have the umpire's call. I've just realised that I've started talking about cricket to a largely American audience so I've completely <laughs> lost over the course of the last minute. Um, <laughs> but basically in cricket, they have umpire's call. So if it's too close for, for the computer to be able to... Um, project what was going to happen next then the decision stands 
So I've wondered for a while if there was space in football for there to be some form of umpire's call where if the VAR review doesn't come to a clear-cut decision within 30 seconds or a minute or whatever, then the decision just stands. Because I think one of the issues now is we have people always burbling on about this clear and obvious thing, which has mm. never been a part of it for offside. <laughs> and it really winds me up when people say it for offside because it's never been involved in the offside. Um so yeah, maybe a coach's challenge that would be fantastic for TV. So I'm, I'm sure the TV companies would love to see it, or an umpire's call, or something that can make it more so it's not all the time the game being interrupted. It's interesting hearing you mentioning like the the impact that it has being well being in stadiums, uh, because I've I guess the when VAR was brought in, if it, we we obviously didn't see that too much before lockdown happened. And um, I've only recently been in stadiums where I've actually seen VAR calls made as a member of the crowd, which changes things a lot, I think. Yeah. So this season, for example, there's been games that I've been to where there's been penalties given for something that most of the crowd didn't even notice was going to be given uh, decisions given for. And I think that sort of makes it weird as well, because it's going beyond that level that, that Jamie was talking about in the beginning, where he said, you know, you feel affronted if your team gets a decision that, that is clearly wrong. But we're starting to see sort of decisions coming through where, where no one's met, noticed anything and the crowd largely are confused about what actually happened. And you aren't given any sort of sense of what, what's going on in, in terms of the replay there as well. So I do think that that sort of side is is an, an interesting, at least side to track, because you have to talk a little bit about uh, what it is that you're expecting football to be in terms of an entertainment. Uh, who are the people who are being entertained? It's moving away from the people in the stadium and towards yeah. a, a TV audience oh, as well. Really. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's definitely the stuff in there that I think needs to be thought about. And I think the disappointment for me has been that in, in the rollout of VAR, there hasn't been any sort of anticipation of what these issues might have been and since the rollout has occurred these uh, uh, issues have become apparent but there hasn't really also been a sort of frank and honest conversation about how you might mitigate some of these problems it, it always just sort of sort of seems as though um you know the powers that be will occasionally sanction a rule change but there, there's no real thinking about like what is the impact of this on on the sport as a product as an entertainment um package or do we dare we say it? No, something that is actually watched by fans in a stadium. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, that divide between the televised audience and the in-person audience is going to continue to get worse since the money obviously is far outweighed by the TV deals than it is by ticket sales these days. But yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a difficult thing. I, I, I think personally I'm excited about the idea of it being automated because it will be more right and you'll get that answer more quickly. But part of that could be because of my Americanness and the fact that I'm used to seeing that kind of thing regularly in, in sports. And then obviously I am one of those remote fans of the Premier League where, you know, maybe if I'm lucky I make it over once or twice a season. So, yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting debate and we'll see how it improves things. But I see the point of, of your... I see your point, John, where it's like you're the the ultimate end goal is trying to make a subjective game objective. So it'll never a hundred percent work because of that that disparity. But we'll see how it goes in time. Uh, now we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club specific questions for each of our guests. All right, Jamie, we'll start off with you talking a little bit about Burnley. Uh one no loss to Liverpool today. But I was curious your thoughts on the match on the whole, because, of course, a lot of teams have lost and will lose by multiple goals uh, to Liverpool this season. So I was curious if you were more impressed by the performance, pretty close in XG, or if you were more disappointed with the result, because at this point you just need points. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, isn't it? I think it's difficult to be too disappointed when you go toe-to-toe with Liverpool. They score from a set piece. There was an element to look about it that, rebound just fell kindly for Fabinho to have a tap in really um, but we need to defend the set piece better obviously um, the positive thing for me was that the chances that we created um, yes we didn't score a goal but we had three very good chances in the first half an hour and if one or two of those goes in then it's a completely different game um, but it is frustrating that we've come away it with nothing. I think there's been games this season where we've played well and got nothing and Sean Dyche has said afterwards that we deserve more and the fans have said we deserve more but there's no points deserved thing in the league table. It's not. It doesn't come into it. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. So yes, it helps that the performances are broadly trending up um, but it's cliche, isn't it, that the mark of champions is playing badly and winning then surely it's the mark of relegated teams to play well and get beat rough stuff (laughs) hopefully things turn around for you there Uh, another discussion that was happening uh, throughout january was uh obviously the letting go of chris wood but then you bring in Valt veghorse it seems to have uh started quite the debate both within and outside of the burnley fan base in terms of the, the differences in ability between the two. Now that you've gotten eyes on Veghorst, do you have a particular lean to that debate? Yeah, the jury's still out for me. Um, obviously, he's played three games and he hasn't scored and we've only scored once. So I think it was unfair to expect him to come into a struggling team that doesn't create a lot of chances and immediately start scoring a lot of goals. That was unrealistic. Um, and especially when you consider that he's adapting to a new league. His physicality is obviously a big, strong lad. Um, would hopefully smooth that path and make it a bit easier. Um, but I did think he struggled physically on his debut against Watford. Um, I think a lot of people were just 
really, really hopeful rather than actually being realistic about how difficult it was going to be for him to come in such a tricky situation. And also, we've played three home games in a week in the worst weather conditions that you can imagine. I'm fully aware that they also have weather in Holland and Germany where he's played most of his career. But um, I think Wednesday nights at Turf Moor are probably something a little bit different. It's something he's going to have to get used to. Um, I think it's difficult to say, even at this early stage, I think he's clearly a more technical player than you would think just to look at him. Um, I wonder if there's a temptation for Burnley, who are quite direct to just see a big striker and try and hit him in the air all the time. That doesn't seem to be his game. For his size, he doesn't seem that good in the air. He doesn't really appear to relish the the physical battle with the defenders. Certainly saw that in the Watford game when I think he was beaten physically time and time again. Um, and in the Liverpool game, he had a couple of chances that he snatched at, really. So... I think it's positive that he's getting in those areas. You always want the striker to be in a position to to at least have the shots. If they're sort of hiding and not getting into those positions, it's more worrying. But he does seem to lack conviction in his finishing, which seems a strange thing to say about it. I think the stat was since he went to the Bundesliga, only Lewandowski had scored more goals. So he obviously has been prolific. He should be confident in front of goal doesn't seem like he's had the best season like Chris Ward so it's a similar situation really and he limped off injured today so hopefully that's not going to be anything serious I think a lot of fans were hoping that he was going to be an upgrade on Ward judging off his record in the Bundesliga but I think it's just very difficult to come into the Premier League in the middle of a season when we've got so many games to catch up it's going to be three games a week for most of the rest of the season um He's not had the greatest season, so he's probably lacking a bit of confidence. The team doesn't create a lot of great chances. He's got a different play style to Chris Ward. I think it's just very, very difficult. But overall, I, I can't say I've been particularly impressed. Gotcha. And then maybe like the upside of that swap is that you made a lot of money in the difference between the valuations of those two players. Uh, but Dave and I talked about on our transfer wrap-up show about how, you know, 12 to 15 million pounds doesn't score you goals or keep you up. I was just curious your thoughts on on the ownership and how that whole situation was handled and if you really wish that, that 12 to 15 million had turned into at least another player. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, there's no transfer profit column in the league table either. It'd be great if there was a transfer profit, a wage budget column, a deserved points column. So I think Burnley would be quite a long way up the table if that was the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's not. So we just have to get on with the hand that we've been dealt. I think you've got to go back to the start of the window, right? And I think most Burnley fans thought we needed a central midfielder as a priority, probably a wide player and maybe a striker. So we didn't do any of that because we just bought a striker to replace the striker that we didn't want to lose. So we stood still. And you can argue over whether Vegos is an upgrade on Wood or not. Only time will tell who's going to have the most goals by the end of the season. Wood hasn't scored for Newcastle yet either, but they've won three games in a row. So he's clearly had more of an impact for them than Begos has for, for us. And I know Newcastle have done more business, but just look at results. It's been a better deal for them. Um, I think it's tricky because we were obviously trying. Um, Orsic at Dynamo, who Kev, you'll know about having destroyed you in whatever European competition <laughs> it was. Well, his manager was in jail. Uh-huh. 
um, he seemed to be one that we felt we were going to get done. And then over the course of 24 hours, it just didn't happen. He decided he was going to stay. There was a lot of uproar from his club's fans over there and whether that swayed him or if he just wanted more money or love from his club or whatever it was. I think we had a lot of eggs in that basket and when the deal didn't happen, we were sort of scrambling a bit after that. There's been a lot of talk that um, I think, I don't know if it's been confirmed, but we were apparently back in for Ross Barkley at Chelsea on loan. Um, and there was a story that there was a, a guy that had turned us down earlier in the window. Then, as time was running out, said, oh, no, actually, I've changed my mind. But then it was too late to get it done. Whether or not that was Barkley, I don't think anyone's confirmed it, but there's been plenty of hinting that that's the case. So we were trying to sign a midfielder and a wide player, but there's no point to trying really hard in the transfer market either. So, yeah, I think I've, I've said on the podcast before about the ownership, and I've, the issue for me is that it's promises not being fulfilled. I came in and said all the right things and it all sounded great. And we're bottom of the league and it's not all the owner's fault. And there has to be some blame on the previous administration for the lack of spending consistently that has resulted in an aging squad. Everyone's got past their peak at the same time. Not been people coming in to freshen it up and, push these older lads to the fringes. It's basically the same team um, with a couple of differences and it's been for three, four years. So there's that staleness now to write the team and the squad. Um, but yeah, we had to do more in January. We just had to. Has anyone ever been bottom of the league and made 12, 13 million pound in profit in transfers <laughs> in the January window? It's unfathomable to me. Um and I'm not saying they should have done a trolley dash and just bought whoever they could get on deadline day. But we, we're starting Aaron Lennon on the wing in the Premier League. We're starting Eric six Peters. years late. Yeah, I mean, he made his 400th Premier League appearance at the weekend. Like, Aaron Lennon's played a lot of games. Like, there's a lot of miles on that clock. I've got nothing against Aaron Lennon, but he's not a Premier League player. He hasn't been for some time. We've got Eric Peters starting left back because we've got an injury. Dale Stevens started a Premier League game. It's like, what What are we doing? What do you expect when we've got these championship players in Premier League teams? So we had to do more business. Um, but January's been and gone, so we just have to, to crack on and get on with playing the 57 matches that we've got to fit in before the end of the season now. <laughs> well, at least you have a really deep squad to help handle that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, John, we'll come to you now to talk about Leeds. Actually, kind of relatedly, uh, also don't have the biggest squad, have been dealing with a lot of injuries this season, as you alluded to earlier. And I was wondering, like, what the ratio is for you in terms of, like, blaming the injuries or the fact that the amount of injuries you have is made far worse because of how thin your squad is? Yeah, I think that there is a tendency amongst football fans to think that the solutions to their problems always lie off the pitch. Um, and so I think that where there have been issues in the way we've played this season, a lot of fans have just been quite happy to just say, well, look at all the injuries that we've had, um, as though that's just kind of a, a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, that ignores the fact that actually we didn't have a huge amount of injuries at the beginning of the season and we were still playing badly there. I mean, um, we played much better against Burnley in the second game that we played this season when we had lots of injuries than we did at the beginning of the season when we pretty much fielded a full-strength side. And I thought we were a little bit lucky to to 
grab a draw against Burnley in in the uh, early on in the season. So, yeah, I think it's part and parcel of fandom to to want to sort of excuse your club for things that that sort of make it a, a less um, res- makes you less responsible for those things. But it it, it definitely comes down to the squad. I, I mentioned it before that. We we play a very aggressive form of football. We have done for for the whole time we've had Bielsa, who's now in his fourth season here. We haven't done enough to churn the squad, and you're you're hearing very similar things from me that you've heard from from Jamie as well. And um, that that shouldn't come as any surprise. I think if you don't churn your squad, if you don't treat your squad responsibly, then you will end up in in these relegation battles. So, yeah, it's a it's a combination of I think the the the, the lack of squad churn, the the pretty aggressive. Um, schedule that we've had over the pandemic, and uh, an inability to an inability to accept that actually, despite the fact we had a good season last season, that didn't mean to say that a, a squad full of older aging players was suddenly going to um, retain its fitness for for a huge time. So, yeah, I think that this is very much a squad issue, but a squad issue isn't something which is just out there and is not the responsibility of anyone else. So the club equally, I think, are to blame for it. Gotcha. And then obviously one of the the highest profile injuries there has been Patrick Bamford. Last season, you were top five in goals scored. Now you don't have Bamford. Now you're 14th at the same point in the season. Is it really that simple or is it all these other mitigating factors? I think there's, yeah, I think it's more complicated than that, unsurprisingly, but uh, certainly missing Pat Bamford is is a big loss. Um, he's not only someone who is very good in terms of goal scoring, but he's someone who knits together our play up front. Uh, he's, a, he's a fantastic presser in a high-pressing system, which we've missed. He's also great at build-up play. He understands the system inside out in terms of the attacking routes that we run. Um, and he's yeah just a, a, an important player to have all around. We we've brought him back recently for the last ten minutes of the burn um, of the Brentford game. Sorry, and he scored in that game uh, immediately, getting injured in the in the celebration. Um, so he's he's clearly someone who who is important for us. But there there are obviously underlying issues. I've mentioned the squad just being full now of of, of players who are one aging and two uh, seem to be coming towards the end of the cycle and 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 are in need of a refresh. Um, and I think there's there's tactical issues as well. This season, I think I mentioned it already that we've we've been trying to be a lot more direct uh, in our attacking than we have been previously. Um, we used to be able to possess the ball and build up slowly and generate fairly repet- repetitious chances that you could you could get um, repeated. Uh, over and over and over again in previous seasons and this season we're now much more frenetic we're scoring from like set we're most dangerous than things like set pieces and also sort of quick counter attacks and when you ramp up the speed and you make these things um uh just sort of uh more more snappy then i think that you're always uh, in danger of uh one just making mistakes, but also to your decision making not being up to speed as well. So I think those those all 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 of those factors together have kind of come together in a perfect storm that have meant that our attacking play has been pretty poor this season. But yeah, missing Pat Bamford has been a big part of that as well. Gotcha. Yeah, an interesting thing I saw is that you also are about thirty chances created short of where you were last season, but. The twist on Chase's creative as a metric is that it has to result on a shot on target. So some of that, I guess, isn't just at the creative phase. Some of it could be falling on someone like Rodrigo, who obviously just had two chances that went off of 
the the woodwork here at the weekend that could have both been fantastic goals. Um, last season, I think he ended up on seven. It, obviously, the the uh, bad news on Bamford's injuries that it might be lasting even longer. Uh, if he has a, a significant setback, do you think Rodrigo is enough up front, or, or would you need to maybe tweak something to the system? Unlikely, though, that may be under Bielsa to get the goals going. Yeah, well, we've not really been playing Rodrigo up front. He's tended to be playing in a in a deep a deeper role as as one of the eights and sort of floating around a lot. And we've been playing Dan James up front, who is obviously a winger, um, which has been an experiment that some people judged to have been vilified by the fact, um, sorry, justified by the fact that he, he uh, scored a couple of goals against Aston Villa. Um, and as I see it, he scored a nice goal against Aston Villa and then bundled one in on the line. And he made a couple of good runs in the in the first 25 minutes or so, but uh, very quickly looked as an ineffective as he always has as a number nine. So, um, yeah, the part of the issue is not just that we've got Bamford out, it's that we've got no one to replace them. And it means that we end up with this this sort of inflated view of a lot of our players because we've, we've seen that a lot this season. When we have a squad that's so... Uh, thin there's no depth there you lose one player and then suddenly they seem to be so much more important because we don't have a backup for for that that player um a case in point is calvin phillips this this season who's been out for Mm. a lot of the season and previously people have said oh how can we ever survive without him um previously that was because we didn't really have anyone who could back him up um when when he was injured and then this season we've had robin Koch, who's a center back that we have who's been filling in for him and no one's really noticed him until we've had um, particularly this re- result against Everton yesterday, where people suddenly started like, well, started saying, well, you know, if we had Phillips, we wouldn't have lost that game. Um, but I, I think that's kind of the, the same, the same sort of issue with with um, with Bamford as well, is that we don't, we just don't have really an out and out um, replacement for him or like for like replacement for him. Um, when it comes to Rodrigo, I mean, Rodrigo's had had a pretty good season in terms of on the ball stuff. Um, but the there is a correlation between Rodrigo playing and Leeds not being as good, weirdly. Uh, and I think a lot of that's to do with the off-the-ball stuff. I mean, obviously, we've mentioned that Leeds are a high-pressing side and they uh, they play a very intense press. And I think the problem has been that, that he isn't able to allow our press to be as snappy as it should be. Uh, and so while we equally have just an elite player in Rodrigo when it comes to the on-the-ball on stuff. When it comes to the off-the-ball stuff, a lot of things break down. And so we end up with games that can look pretty hopeless. Um, so, yeah, the the Everton game, I suppose, is a case in point, although I think that was more of an issue of them pressing us high and us not being able to build up from the back. But there have been games where we've just not been able to win the ball back in, in the sorts of advanced areas that we used to be able to. Uh, and I think that's largely down to Rodrigo's off-the-ball stuff. So, again, it's just sort of like everything that I feel like I'm saying in this in this podcast is that there's some things that are good and there's some things that are not so good. And um, I think Leeds will model through, uh, but there are issues and there, there are things that need solving. And at the moment, it doesn't look like they're going to be solved. Yeah, at least not this season. But best of luck to both of you. May you both stay up. Uh, in order to do so, you'll probably need some of your underperforming players uh, to turn things around here this season to, to get you the goals or, or to step up defensively to prevent them going in the other end. If there was a player on each of your clubs that is particularly underperforming that you think could turn it around this year, who would it be? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously not short of underperforming players with bottom of the league, so it's probably most of them. Um, I think the positive is that some of them have already started to turn things around. Nick Pope seems to be in good form again. James Sarkowski had three outstanding games in a row before the Liverpool game, and he was pretty good in that one as well. So Sarkowski's in strong form. 
considering those people suggesting that we sell him like we sold Ward to Newcastle in January, which I still can't get my head around. Um, so it's positive that also in particular two of our best players have been showing that they're two of our best players of late. Um, but the, it's impossible for me not to talk about Dwight McNeil for this one just because he's left out of the team for the Liverpool game. First league game, he's not started all season. As far as I'm aware, he was fit to play, came off the bench and did okay. Um, his confidence is clearly absolutely shattered at the moment. Um, but I don't think the way Dash has used him has helped. Like I said earlier, the 4-4-2 is very difficult for the wingers. Um, the last couple of games he's played on the right wing rather than on the left, where he's obviously stronger because he's left-footed. Uh, if players on the right, it's even more obvious how one-footed he is. It's difficult for, for us to get him into the game in attacking positions just because he wants to be on his left foot all the time so he has to come inside um he just doesn't have the ability to go the outs go on the outside when he's on the right so it makes us more predictable to play against um he hasn't scored all season i think he's only got one assist so in terms of pure numbers it's not been anything like good enough we've had more returns from matt lawton the right back who's not even in the team now so um in terms of numbers in an attacking sense he's just not been doing it but to demonstrate what I was saying about the defensive work, I saw a stat in the week that there was only four players that made more tackles in the Premier League this season than Dwight McNeil. And most people see McNeil as a creative player. Okay, he's not got the goals and the assists to back that up this season, but Dwight McNeil is a creative winger and he had the fifth most tackles in the division. It was fullbacks and defenders primarily above him. So it shows that he's doing the defensive work that Dash asks of him. I just think it's really difficult to do all that and then also be the one guy in the team that can create things. So, yeah, I mean, I, I said earlier that I think the 3-5 series worth looking at. Dwight McNeil's number 10. He's on record as saying that he wants to play centrally. I think we have to try something different to get more creativity into the team, just get out of our rut of just doing the same things all the time and expecting different results. Um, so I think give McNeil the keys to the attack, really say, you want to play centrally, you think that this is where your future is, prove that it's the case, because at the moment we've now got, on paper, our most talented player after Maxwell Corney, who's just not doing anything, it looks like he's very low on confidence, doesn't believe in himself anymore, and this is a guy that was being talked of as a Forty million, fifty million pound player not that long ago. I'm also a fan of the idea of Dwight McNeil playing centrally for the record, and have been for a long time. So I, I think I, everyone I is apart from Sean Dyche. It's very <laughs> infuriating. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not here to talk about Burnley's underperforming players. I'm here to talk about Leeds's underperforming players. And yeah, <laughs> like Jamie says, we've got a lot of underperforming players as well. You don't end up at that end of the table with without underperforming players. I, I don't think. Um, I think the the obvious answer for us is Rafinha. Um, Rafinha was subbed at half time this week as uh, and, and as you know he's clearly our best player or, or up there with between him and, and Rodrigo in terms of technical uh, prowess. And yeah, we've with Rafinha, you know, we've just very much been a Rafinha hero ball team this season. There's been so many times, particularly at the beginning of the season, where he just dug us out of huge holes. And um, I think we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now were it not for Rafinha. I think we would very much have been in a, 
the the mix of with the the bottom three teams had it not been for him so it feels a little bit weird saying that he's the player who we need to turn it around in, in the second half of the season uh, but he's been spending a lot of time recently on international breaks in South America playing for Brazil no doubt that toll has, has started sort of bearing itself on him um, and this time around he's just looked a bit washed out after coming back from the international break so uh, hopefully the reason he was brought off was in recognition of that fact. But um, there's also the added aspect that I think clubs now recognise that he is our danger man in terms of uh, the, the 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 player for whom moments can occur, um, and he's the he's the guy who is going to make things happen when nothing else seems to be happening. And uh, so he's he's obviously being targeted by oppositions uh, as a part and parcel of the fact that we play a man marking system means that you can actually manipulate the position of, of opposition players when you play against us and so we're seeing a lot of teams thinking of creative ways of keeping Rafinha away from the goal as well uh, but there's also things happening like a lot of teams doubling up on him and uh, reducing that threat which does open us up on other sides of the field so again he is doing his part for the team but it's in a much more passive way than than previously so um, yeah I, I don't know whether or not this really answers the question but he has been underperforming a little bit more recently off, off the back of all of that and it would be nice to see him uh, sort of coming back into his pomp again in the second half of the season. Yeah, I, I think that's all right, and hopefully those guys do step it up here towards the end of the year. Next chance for McNeil here will be in the match that you have against Brighton there, Jamie. Uh, is there optimism off of the, like you've said, the kind of increasing level of the performances of late? Two really strong segues, by the way. The last two segues, really, <laughs> really good. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, we've played Liverpool at home, Manchester United at home. Only got one point to show from it, but I think People would probably say, if we play like that against the teams in and around us, then we'll win the games. And we, we're we in a position now where we need to get points against the mid-table teams, like your Brightons, your Tottenham's that we've got coming up. You know, <laughs> these, these teams that sooner or later, they're not going to have anything to play for, right? So, yeah, I, I don't know. I think um, Brighton's a good match for us because they don't have a lot of penetration on the board. They on the ball, they don't score a lot of goals either, so it will probably be quite tight. It's a sort of game where one goal will very likely nick it. Um, probably jinx it and we'll lose 6-4 or something now. But, yeah, I think this is an acid test for us. Are we just getting up for the big games like Liverpool, Man United, when there's big crowds, it's been sellouts at the turf for the last couple of games. It's a long away trip. On the bright side, we've got a clear midweek, which might be the last one we have all season because of the number of games that we've got. So I think it's a real acid test for us. A lot will depend on whether or not Vegost is fit and available after limping off today. I think if he's out for any length of time, then we are knackered. Um, but we have to try and be positive. We only won one game all season, so we're going to need to win four or five, like John was saying, the sort of swinging points per game that, teams in the bottom three have had compared to what they're going to need is really high. We have to start winning sooner rather than later. It has to be in the games that we've got coming up or it's going to be too late. Yeah, and then, John, you're going to be hosting hated Manchester United in this next match. Given the tenor of your overall comments this show, I assume you're not overly optimistic. 
Yeah, not particularly. I guess it's it's a weird one because obviously Manchester United have had their own struggles and uh, this is the sort of game where the players will be very up for it. But we don't traditionally have a good record against Manchester United under Marcelo Bielsa. In fact, we just we tend to get roundly uh, destroyed by them, at least in the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer era. The Ralph Rangnick era maybe feels different in that regard. But having said that, um, we have had huge problems with teams who play 4-4-2 and press high this season, uh, namely Southampton and Everton just made us look very, very average. Manchester United are a team who tend to play a 4-4-2 and press high. So, yeah, I, I, I am expecting this one to be uh, not a pretty game. But you, you never know with Manchester United, um, as Jamie will tell you, there's always the possibility of sticking in the game long enough and getting something out of it. So that, that's kind of my hope for this game. Gotcha. Well, for I think the third time the show, good luck to you both. Uh, if you'd like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, that'd be a good time. Yeah. So thanks for having me on as always. I've been Jamie Smith talking about Burnley. I write the Northern Ever newsletter, which goes out by a Substack um, on a Monday. Um, and if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter as well. My Twitter is at Jamie Smith Sport. Yeah, and if you want to find out what I'm putting out there, the best place to follow me is my personal Twitter, which is at John underscore McKenzie. Uh, and if you're interested in the lead side of things, I have a channel where we do focus on the stats and tactics stuff, which is at all stats, aren't we? So yeah, plenty of stuff over there as well. Yep, everybody listening should definitely check all of that out. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable on Twitter and by searching EPL Roundtable on all of your podcasting services. Uh, thanks to these two guys for joining me today. And uh, folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.